Remote recording? Share it to developer news. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. Oh, my goodness. You know what I did? I hit hijack, and I did hit record. So this is yet another Ken Ripple blunder, but at least we found it out in the second article. Go to fail. Go to fail. Hey, so. <laughs> share- <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. the title of the episode. That's the title of the episode. <laughs> we have our title. Uh, Chariot Developer News, episode number uh, 81. Is it 81 before I completely screwed up? Yeah, let's go with it. We'll go with 81. Uh, for um, Monday, the 24th of February, uh, 2014, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Eric Snyder. I'm Joel Confino. Let's do what we just did for the last five minutes all over again, shall we? Hey, sure. Was it at least at the very end of the show? Yes, so, that's true. So, so we're here to talk about all things tech, and we um, have me at the control helms, and because I'm so rusty, I forgot to hit record. So um, we're going to reenact what we just did, just like, uh, you know, if the Civil War was just five minutes ago, we are now dressed in livery and we're all set to go. We're going to redo it. Okay. So anyway, uh, so we might as well talk about the biggest blunder, which is go to fail, I believe is the, the label <laughs> we're hearing here. What if you had, now since we're a little bit rehearsed, what if you say had uh, a block of code that checked to make sure that your SSL certificate, your, your encrypted key comes in, that actually it's coming from the right place. And let's say somehow you wrote a bug in that piece of software. Would that be bad? That would be that would be um, pretty pretty bad. Yeah. That's what apparently happened on the iOS and Mac platforms. Um, and so this is a security breach that's been in. I guess you were saying when we were doing the pre-show, real show, real show pre-show. <laughs> um, you were, uh, Joel, you were saying this has been in for a while because of the different version numbers. It, it appears to be. I'm not sure when it was introduced, but it affects iOS six and iOS seven, and then it affects multiple versions of uh, Mac OS. So this seems to be like. I mean, it's at least widespread. Years ago, yeah. Right. So it looks like um, it, it, the current uh, vulnerability has been confirmed to iOS 6.15, 7.04, and 7.05. So if you haven't updated, go update now. And OS 10, uh, 10.90 and 10.91. Now, my understanding is that there's not a fix yet for OS 10. Right. The fix is turn your Wi-Fi off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess. Um or use your tethering, I guess, to your phone. Even still, you probably can't do that and guarantee it. But nevertheless, so um, update your iOS devices, and hopefully there's a fix coming really quickly. But essentially, here's the bug. The bug is, as we look at this on an Ars Technica article, by uh, actually by Dan Gooden. So I got that wrong in the first place anyway. Um, and it turns out that there's a, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a method called SSL Verify Signed Server Key Exchange in uh, iOS. And, uh, you know, the networking stack. And somewhere along the lines, as it's actually looking at the SSL key and making sure the, the certificate that it came from uh, is, is fair, they added an additional failure point, or there's basically a bunch of if-then blocks, if-if statements with go-tos below them, if they're true. And they merged in an additional go-to. Right. And the go-to fail basically means, eh, we're, we're just going to ignore it. We're just going to throw it away. Right. And <laughs> so basically imagine like having, first of all, okay, let's, let's code review this for a second. Code without blocks around it for an if statement. You're, you're like, you're jumping all over this next article, man. All right, never mind. So, <laughs> so, so see, I'm screwing these guys up. It's even worse. No, it's, it's that obvious. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's so obvious that, you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you probably wonder, well, you know. <laughs> They can't be a conspiracy. Get, get blame. Uh, Joe NSA added this line. <laughs> right. So. What if I just did a control D and then save and walked away? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, it's called the go-to fail uh, bug, I guess, out there because uh, it's literally the line of code that's duplicated is go-to fail. 
<laughs> well, this is why you always need the braces with the if. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so why don't we, why don't we jump all that. over your article? Yeah. So this was the first article. It's an Ars Technica article. If you want to see all these articles, go to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. We are uh, episode, hold on. We are episode number... 81, I am correct. Got it. Uh, and that's there. And then, so let's talk about the next thing. So learning from the go-to-fail security bug. So R let's talk. Right. So uh, Ari Van Van Deersen, D-E-U-R-S-E-N, Deersen. Deersen. Yep. sorry, sorry, okay. sorry, sorry. Um, title of it is uh, learning from Apple's hashtag go-to-fail security mm -hmm. bug. So uh, he reprints the code, and then he goes over a, a, a few things. The first one I thought was really cool. Basically, he says, code formatting is a security feature. If you're a Python guy, you're going to cheer when you hear this. Uh -huh. But uh, obviously, in, uh, you know, in most languages, white space is not significant, so um, there's no need to indent. Right. So had indentation practices been followed or some auto formatting been applied here, it would have been ridiculously obvious that this was a bug. Yeah, right. So uh, Because basically the, the go-to fail inside of the if would have been indented for the one and back on the left in the other. Right. So, you know, so you have to question what happened to the code review on this but you can you know you can see if someone's it's the end of the day someone's bleary eyed they We've might all miss been it. there yeah. but if it's if it's outdented it's pretty obvious what's going on right uh, right so he also says indentation must be automatic right so uh, again python if you're if you're writing in go that's um, it's it's not significant white space but it's uh, the formatting tool is used like constantly for, by everybody, so okay. it's pretty obvious. Um, he said automated checkers, question mark. I mean, you know, you might have mixed feelings about that, but um, static analysis and would, would have caught this. Um, I would just think that you would have, at bare minimum, in the logic that is so critical, wouldn't you have a unit test around that block well, of code? Right, so that's his next point. Testing is a security concern. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, I'm not one of these people that, that argues for 100% coverage. In fact, it's detrimental yeah. to the code base in a lot of cases. But definitely, this particular piece of code... This percentage was the most important percentage. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> code. For real. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, coverage analysis, he, he goes over. And the uh, return error code idiom. Um, so... Oh, uh, yeah, right. So, basically, he's returning an error code from the function. Is that what he's doing? Uh, yes... Basically, he says the global error variable set checked and returned for every function call. But basically, I, I guess you could also say the whole, um, you know, why, you know what, I guess this is probably more prevalent in this type of C code, but, you know, it's falling it's through to error. Falling through to errors is, you know, it's fraught with peril. Yes, it is. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I, I, I hope, I know Apple is extremely closed about what they do internally. But it would be nice if, like a lot of these other companies, they came back and issued a, a, a slight, you know, we goofed up, here's what we did wrong, here's what we will do in the future, here's how we finally, you know, here's how we fixed it, here's what we're going to do to address it. Some learnings thing. It'll be interesting to see if they ever do that. I, I, I doubt they will. I doubt it very much. But hopefully they get a fix in soon. So if you are on Apple, one thing they also said was that they could not verify the failure in anything other than Safari. So Firefox and Chrome were safer to use um, because they weren't using the internal um, SSL checks. Okay. That's one thing I read in the article. So reread the article in case I'm completely wrong on that. But they basically said don't use Safari, but also just be careful with your internet, you know, your wireless and any kind of public hotspots. Avoid using public hotspots because they also would be exchanging these keys through the browser to get you authenticated onto their open network. So they're dangerous anyway. I mean, if you're sitting there on a wireless hotspot 
and it's an open hotspot without necessary, you know, without a uh, SSI or without a key rather, like WPA key or something. Then you know, people could sniff your packets anyway. That's Absolutely. you know, that's one reason I know it's easier for businesses to just have an open network, but it, it makes more sense for them to publish the password and put it up there for everyone to see. Yes. that way you have link to link encryption at least. Know? Yes, but I guess if you're Starbucks, you don't want to bother. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. All right. So, all right, now we scared everybody. Okay. Um, <laughs> here's another thing that I found interesting. I'm just going to kind of go through the middle of this stuff. So, is here, anyone here ever played around with Test Flight? I think we've used it at Chariot for some of our stuff. Um, and maybe we didn't, but I thought it was Test Flight. Basically, it's one of these um, beta application uh, testing support tools where you can distribute apps that are in beta mode to all your different customers. And I know that. Um, I'm pretty sure TestFlight was one we used at least on the iOS platform and maybe even on Android. But it was bought. Um, the company was called Bursley. And so Bursley owned TestFlight. And TestFlight basically is what people had been using, a fair number of people have been using for this kind of uh, business. And they had an Android version of the app. Uh, well, it turns out that now that's going to be discontinued now that Apple bought it. That's a pretty brave move there. I saw that too. I thought that was surprising that they gutted the Android version. I mean, I guess if they're going to take over the developers and, you know, incorporate them into their stack of tools, they have a competitive advantage if they own it and someone else doesn't, but that just seems a little bit yucky. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, so they said they also discontinued use of the SDK to gain further insight into application usage for iOS and Android apps. That's a bummer because you could look and see what the people were doing in your application and say, oh, they used these areas of the app, or they didn't use this area of the application, and then you could kind of adjust. But um, now it looks like currently only existing development teams that are already uploaded SDK-enabled apps are able to continue to use those features. Also, they offered Flight Path for real-time app analysis, and that was also shut down recently. So it seems like, you know, that was a great thing. All good things eventually get bought up by somebody else and changed. <laughs> You know, so, oh well. So if you were using uh, Test Flight and you're on Android, time to look for an alternative. All right. Um, here's an interesting uh, little article from Cult of Mac. Um, if you have multiple Google accounts and you want to sync, upload, and share Google Drive data, there's something called InSync Plus. Now, I just noticed this thing. I don't know. I think it was me that posted this. Or was it one of you guys? It was me, wasn't it? No, it must have been yeah. you. Yeah. So it's basically an app that will let you do sync between a couple things. The, the, the challenge that I think I have with Google in general in their multiple app stack is if you've got two accounts, right. customer you know, account and your own account, uh, now all of a sudden you can't have one set of the truth. It's not easy to have one source. Yeah, well, do you want... By nature, but... Well, I don't... Personally, I don't, I don't want one source. Well, let me put it this way. You can sync Google Docs, right? Yeah. But to switch to the other Google Docs, you have to sign out and sign in, don't you? The, uh, the, yeah. Well, By default. Or, or you can have multiple tabs. You, you, you don't have to have... You can do that. You, you can do that? Yeah, you can do that. But... Uh, <laughs> I should just cut this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Right? Am I making that I'm up? I'm not 100% sure. Hold on. I'm going to go to Google. Wait, wait so what's Drive. this question? So the, you have two accounts for Which Google I do. Drive. Yep. Can you look at them both without signing out from one? Yes, you yeah. can have multiple, but you have to switch between the two. I do it all the time between uh, Hado and Chariot. You can so. have. Can you have two tabs open with uh, different? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So what what is annoying though is if you use the Drive app, you know yes, the one that shows. That's what I'm talking about. You can't be signed into both for that. That's what I'm talking. about. I'm sorry. I'm talking about the website. Yeah, yes, yeah. The website yeah. I get. I get. Right, you right. just have two browser that, tabs open. That does drive me nuts. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So what this will do. Um, <laughs> 
this will actually try to sync two accounts. And I, I haven't really dug deeply into it, but it was just kind of one of those things where I thought, yeah, you know, that is a little bit, it is a little bit artificial, the switching between the different accounts. You know, like a, 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 it'd be nice to have a unified inbox, for example. Sure. Where you could see the email from, you know, different Google app accounts, so to speak. Um, or, you know, have a, a unified, uh, you know, folder system you could look through that has, like, different sources of Google Docs. You could drag and drop between them. I mean, the mail, you can forward accounts, obviously, and I do that. And that works okay. The calendar actually integrates okay, too, although they try to limit that a little. Yeah. The Docs is probably the worst. Yep. And the other thing is to export from one, and just to say you're switching, and you want to take all your Google Docs out. Yeah, what do you do what, there? They come out as Word Docs or PDFs. Like, they don't come out really nice. Like, oh, they I don't see. come out as, like, whatever Google's internal XML, well, they're going to use XML, but whatever internal text structure they use, you can't get them out and import them as easily as you would think. You can export them as a Word Doc and import them as a Word Doc, but I haven't tried that enough to know if that screws up the formatting. Well, so anyway, so maybe this was a bad selection, but it's only $5 for the next, what, six days. <laughs> So the important part is it's cheap. Send us a free account. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That's kind of a waste of time. I'm sorry. I think I've just been link-baited. Um, all right. That must have been on Twitter. Hey, can someone talk to me about Dottie? Does anyone know what Dottie is? So apparently Dottie is some sort of Scala. Uh, I want to call it Scala Lite or Scala for Beginners. Um, and so there was an announcement that Martin Odersky just did. This is on uh, jacksender.com. Uh, um, and so he said that uh, the motivation for this Dottie project is to create a space for testing out new ideas where you, quote, won't be troubled by the stringent backwards compatibility constraints that Dog Regular Scala releases. Hmm. And that's interesting, isn't it, that he's saying that about yeah. Scala. Hmm. Scala's his baby. It is, too. Dottie is about simplifying Scala. Well, okay, that's a good thing. I think it yeah. is, yeah. Stripping back to a smaller set of key features. Um and although the language is key chief the goal, I would say it's fair that you can do both object-oriented programming and functional programming and kind of mix and match what you need where you need to, because it is both languages. It's both types of language. Um, you know, but then they have these extra features and they aren't they aren't essential. Uh, it's a work in progress. It just has a front end with a parser and type checker. And it's still awaiting the transformation and cogeneration phases. So it looks like it's not really anything you could use right now. But maybe it's heralding a future that they're going to try to p pay more attention to this. It's interesting. Simpler Scala would be good. Is this type safe, you know, admitting something here? Uh, without admitting it, probably. Yeah. Let me see the Google Group's announcement here. Um, I'm going to quote this. Um, Dottie open-sourced Martin Odersky. A couple of days ago, we open-sourced the Dottie. The Dottie. <laughs> a research platform for new language concepts and compiler technologies for Scala. And there's a GitHub project for it. Uh, my goal is that the focus of our research and development efforts lies squarely on simplification. Uh, and he goes on, let's see. I mean, Odersky is a professor, and so yeah. he is a language guy, so it's probably not you know, too much of a stretch that he would be interested in these kind of things. Right. And then there's, of course, a, a little well, bit of discussion. Without necessarily being like an, you know, him saying as a backwards way, oh, and Scala's not good. Like, I don't necessarily see that as I doubt that. he'd say that. But, you know, so worst case, you know, start on GitHub and pay attention to it and check back in about six months. We'll see where it goes. But it's interesting that they're trying to do that. Yeah. So, Dottie. And what does it stand for? There's something in here. Dependent object types. The theoretical underpinnings for which you can find in as he as the writer puts it here in fulsome academic glory so that's essentially what Scala is trying to do is, hmm. is give you dependent object types i guess is one of the things and that's the reason they called it dotty i guess i don't know anywho all right uh what do i go to now um 
Let's go to let's go to the imperative to full functional Java 8 in a few examples. So I found this to be interesting. Uh, it's an InfoQ article from uh, it looks like two people, Raul Gabe, Gabriel Irma and Mario Fusco. Uh, and it starts off by talking a little bit about, you know, you could do collections that sort and give it an embedded comparator um, in a function. Or the new functional way of doing is transactions.sort, parentheses comparing, and then inside transaction colon get value, essentially. Um, the idea is you chain functional statements together or nest functional statements and functional calls together where, you know, a function may be returned from another function to do some processing for you. And so what they do is they try to go through and, and give you some samples. Uh, and there's a book they mentioned, which I haven't seen before, Java 8 in Action, Lambdas, Streams, and Functional Style Programming, uh, which is by these authors and by a person named Alan Mycroft. So the real cheat there is I think I'm probably going to go get, get a copy of this book so I'm ready for Java 8 when I really start paying attention to it. Yeah, in that example, the the improvement is dramatic. It is. I, I just, I, I sort of crack up when I see this because I just picture all these large enterprise <laughs> Java organizations where people have been for 15, 20, 30 years, you know. Trying to get their arms around this? Well, this yeah. won't be welcome. Let's just say that. In, in, in many places where you see Java, you know, this probably isn't going to... But it will be more welcome, I think, than Stala will. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I definitely agree. So you agree could sneak functional. So, so the way I see this, this is this is a Trojan horse for functional programming. Right? Oh yeah. They give you Java eight, and now you, sneaky developer, get them to upgrade you to Java eight, and all of a sudden you're programming functionally, and yeah. all of a sudden you get things done with a lot less code, and everyone else around you goes, "What?" Yeah, I, I agree. Because <laughs> they don't understand the paradigm. I think it'll be a big improvement. It really will. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're like the one guy in your department who's who's really on the ball and does some, you know closure on the side you're going to be very happy right and then the question is when they code review your code are they going to say rip that out and make it simpler you probably can yeah. that's my well, fear we figure from java 5 until now <laughs> has you know there haven't really been substantial language improvements and so this is a huge language improvement. yeah and so you wondered like is java's trajectory going to be you know i don't know i mean it's still going to be around for a long time obviously because there's so much legacy written in it but with Pretty big improvements like this. This gives Java, I think, some new legs. I think, I think so, so too. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Plus, how much of that goes into the bytecode low level? I mean, I'm not sure what they've changed in the bytecode to make Java a more, you know, give more features to other dynamic languages and functional languages. I don't know what they've done. Um, so they start with the imperative style. You know, they they talk about a particular problem. Um, you know, uh, the variance formula, and they show your typical way of doing it. And then they discuss the fork join feature in Java seven. Um, doing parallel programming, so they, they, they create a fork join calculator and kick that off. Uh, talk about recursion a little bit. And then now they look at parallel stream programming with Java 8, uh, and they break it down. And then they do benchmarks. So, um, and if I'm trying to interpret this right, the imperative version took 60 milliseconds. The fork join was really, really fast at 22 milliseconds. And the streams version was 46 milliseconds. So it was still faster than the regular old Java way of doing it um, wasn't as fast as fork join, but it was a lot easier to program from what they're basically diagramming out and showing you. It's a little more direct. Anyway, so I, it, at bare minimum, I think uh, the, the, the breakout of this is the Java 8 in action book. I want to get a copy of that and take a look at it. So anyway, so that's on infoq.com, and it's called Fork Join to Parallel Streams, but uh, from imperative programming to fork join to parallel streams in Java 8. Well, you are right. If somebody really takes advantage of this and writes a lot of code using some of these idioms, and you haven't been up 
on what's Java 8, you'll look at that and go, what is this? Is this from Mars? Yeah. <laughs> Did somebody write Groovy? And I think that's the essential weirdness about Java, right? I mean, because the VM lets you build these really interesting languages that can do a lot of things in a lot simpler way or a little uh, a different way, let's say, than the Java VM with the Java language, right? But now the Java language is playing catch up and we're all going to have to be in that world. And so we're going to have people leaking code in that's functional that never had a chance to do that before. So it will be a very interesting time when people are just learning it. Yeah, because the functional... Including me, I mean, you know, on the Java 8 side. I'm sure I'll make my own fun mistakes, you know? Because the functional libraries that exist for, you know, older versions of Java, they're there, but they're so hard to read and use that they uh -huh. really just kill it. Like, you have to want it so bad because your code's <laughs> going to look awful. Right. <laughs> but with this, it'll actually look good, and I think it'll be a nice improvement. Then the question is, if, if Java 8 does a lot of the basic things that Scala does. Not that it does all of them, right. but if it does enough functional to be dangerous, how much do you need to go to Scala? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think this is definitely going to hurt Scala. I mean, big time, I would think. Sure. Uh, well, honestly, I mean, not to leak too many opinion, my opinions of Scala. Well, you can leak. That's what our show is all about. Well, I don't know. My classic joke is that you can slam your hands on the keyboard, come out with some valid Scala. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. If I just had parentheses, keys, and a couple of characters, I could do a lisp too. So, uh, but, you know, so I, I think this could be uh, this could be a great transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely should be interesting to see. And it's good to get that competition out there because the more functional paradigms we have, the more functional programming languages we have, you know, we'll see what people gravitate towards. At least they have a choice. Right. So that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, cough, cough This is going to be the dumbest thing ever on this show. No, ever. I think mine were all dumb today. Ever. No. Go ahead. That's it. What you're seeing? <laughs> that's, that's, so cough All right. Wait, is Not there everybody noise? at once. Okay. <laughs> is there noise? Yeah, there's noise. That's, that's it. That's what it does. It plays noise? It pl okay, so they, they have links to a bunch of research. So that, that in itself is interesting. So if you go to coughativity.com. But they've, there's research that shows that the background noise that, um, that contains specific voices, even if you're not listening to them, like even music with lyrics or conversation in the background, if, even if it's not quite loud enough for you to consciously understand, if it's got words that the brain can interpret, even subconsciously, it dis it's distracting and it, Absolutely. and it affects your productivity. So that's Absolutely. why people love to work in coffee houses because it's like a general din. Uh -huh. it's, it's not noise. It's not music, but it's the right kind of noise to make you productive. So Coffeeativity is a website, and they have uh, an uh, they have apps for like you know OS ten and uh, Android App Store and 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 the um, iOS Store. Um, and it, that's all it is. It's three different streams of coffee house noise. That's hilarious. That's it. all it is. And somehow they're making money, or at least they have plans to make money off this. I have no idea how. <laughs> they they used to sell the the Mac. Everybody has plans and has no idea how. <laughs> yes. well, they used to sell the Mac app for five bucks, but now it's free. So I don't know. Maybe the iPhone app costs something. I'm not sure. It's so funny. Um, is there Flappy Bird being integration? Or yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, that's all. It's just that's all it does. It just. I would get this. Yeah, and I use it because it's true. At least in my case, I find it to be very soothing, and, and I think I'm actually more productive. Coughativity. Coughativity. So my, my one is actually just uh, drunk Ron Swanson. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a loop of Ron Swanson drunk dancing. That is really awesome. 
That's that's pretty distracting, though. I think you have to put that link in. You have to do it. As a matter, when I got this was a Statamic, this product that I've been working with, yeah. CMS, which I was hacking with all weekend. It's fun to hack with, but um, in their tutorial, when you're done the tutorial, it goes. And, you know, basically, now you've learned how to use Statamic. Time to celebrate. You click on it, and it goes to DrunkRonSwanson.com. <laughs> it's just a loop. <laughs> DrunkRonSwanson.com. Well, so I, I have a comment about this. So um, I've been cursed because I'm a, I'm a musician, and so I play drums. And every time I hear something where I know what the beat is, forget it. Like, I'll be working on something, and if I hear... Now, now in my head, I hear that stupid beat, and I'm like, I'm focusing on the beat. Wait, stop! Get back work. And no matter what music it is, if there's lyrics, if there's a chord progression I recognize, if there's so like musicians I think are really tortured by this, especially because we're always looking for patterns in music. Right. Drives us crazy. So I listen to if I if I listen to jazz and I've heard it before, I'm doomed because I play jazz. But <laughs> if I put freeform stuff on, if I put like bop that I haven't heard before, it's random enough that I don't care until the second time around. When it comes and it replays the head at the end of the song, I'm doomed. <laughs> so white noise is probably a lot better for me. That's why I go to the coffee shop. I can concentrate there. It makes sense, too. Yeah. You know, there's things like um, if your brain's occupied with some things, like if you're hyperactive. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, just having people are hyperactive, just having like a coin in your hand. Uh, can actually improve your concentration because it's just something that lets create. your motor skills kind of do something and then your brain can concentrate. That was a cane mutiny, wasn't it? Doesn't anyone remember the cane mutiny with, with Captain Admiral Quig? This is a 1940s, 1950s movie. And the guy would walk around two ball bearings and Maybe he had ADHD and everybody misunderstood him. He could have. And then basically everyone was got a mutiny on the cane. Yeah, it was great. Great movie, by the way, the cane mutiny. All right. I think, is that it? I think it might be. No, no, no. we got to come on. Hit it. Somebody. Take it away. Oh, we do. Yes. Awesome. Um, Generating a change log based on merged pull request or commit messages. Uh, again, uh, this that's it. That's all we got to say. End of end of discussion. No, um, it's just. Uh, I, like I, it. I know this isn't the only one there. Uh, this has been done before, but it, so this it, is a tool. It's just a tool. Uh, you can find it at the link. Download it from oh, GitHub. I love this. And yeah. uh, I like it a lot. You can yeah, gener- either from pull requests from GitHub, or if you're not using pull requests, just the straight commits. Why and isn't this part of GitHub? If you're not using pull requests, by the way, I recommend it highly. But anyway, uh, it'll generate. Uh, um, uh, change logs for you. So pub- publishable change logs. Yeah. So I awesome, thought that was pretty cool. Awesome. Awesome. That's a great one. Yeah. Always handy to find those little utilities. I could have used this actually building my uh, releases for the training. So yeah. Uh, cool. Netflix. Of course, what it doesn't do is it doesn't clean up like the dumb commits that you wish you hadn't put in there. So yeah. Like you, you know, you. So I don't want this to be public. This commit message. Can I just I like in? delete that then and just? Uh, you could. That's sure. what I probably would. Yeah. yeah. Like the stupid, like, I I committed this to uncommit the stupidity I just committed. Right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Which is why the pull requests are better, because you can squash your commits. Exactly. Yeah. Another tip for people. Uh, Netflix said to agree to pay Comcast. Well, you guys are in luck. I guess I'm screwed. Yeah. Um, I'm on Fios, so I'm still screwed. But uh, Netflix said to agree to pay Comcast for faster access. Yeah, this is an interesting one, because this doesn't sound exactly like net neutrality. But <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, well, net non-neutrality. Yeah, but it's... It's not as crazy, you know, so people I think maybe will make a big deal out of that. But when you look into this article from, and this is on Bloomberg, um, basically what Netflix and Comcast agreed to do was use an internet exchange point. And so I looked in, okay, what are those? You know, these companies that are basically um, hubs for companies who want to peer, you know, so you and your customers or uh, a lot of companies actually seems to use these hubs for their own data centers to have basically like their own 
private networks between data centers for the purposes of speed. And so Comcast, it's essentially like Comcast servers and uh, Netflix servers are sitting in this data center next to each other, and then they just are, are running on their own network. Um, and it's not that uncommon. On this company's website, they say that Box.com uses them, and that other companies use them too, although, um, again, some of those case studies seem to be just intra-company, not necessarily inter. Uh -huh. But, you know, you could make the case that, okay, here we go. So now Comcast is, you know, paying for preferred access. Although Comcast says it's not that Netflix is not getting preferred access. They're just an arrangement so that they can get a more, I don't know, like a private Consistent access. Consistent It could be like parsing those words, though. I don't know. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you might start to worry. So, so the whole paradigm used to be that that, that these exchanges would peer. And, and the, I guess when by definition, peer implies like a two-way exchange. But when you're Netflix, right, it's not going to be... Mostly outflow. It's, it's mostly, right. It's, you, you know, you really... We, it's and hard. And to pause or play. Right. So it's hard <laughs> to say. Right it's, it's hard to ever up. say that you're going to have an even exchange. Right. Um, so uh, th it's that disparity that causes these problems in the marketplace. It there. is a challenge because, I mean, these are media companies who also have their own large amounts of content to get over and to deliver. So, you know, you could, you could look at this all sorts of different ways of the coin. Um, I have Fios, and I know that the, there was been a, there's been concern about Verizon and Netflix, the same kind of thing in a number of other companies. So, um, so yeah, I totally get it. It's, it's a complex problem, and without regulation, it's really these companies have to come up to some sort of agreements. I think what I've just learned, though, is I wish I would have created a peering company. Yeah, right. right? I this mean, is going to be big. How awesome would that be to be the peering company, right? Yeah, I just hope uh, – I, I, I really can't predict – I mean, I, people – claim to to know what the end result is going to be on the end consumer i can't i can't i have no i can't say that i really know because you never know like when this all shakes out what is the end result going to be right um, no you know? no one knows well, or if you're like a model if you're a media company that you know whatever so you're a content provider so you're joel flex yeah uh, like and, joel flex. and you want to create a new uh you know internet channel um, but you can't afford to pay uh, for Ron these, Swanson one, yeah, to, to be peered up with these internet giants on an exchange point. Is your performance then going to be crap? Yeah. I mean, right. that's, that's There's the, the general concern. That's right. And I think that if these still happen, but you, the, there's some sort of ground rules that come out because they were they basically were asked the FCC to go back and revisit these rules. Well, plus if you're Joel Flex, right? Not probably not that many people are going to be watching it. Right. So no, no, that that's true. No, yeah, that, that, that does hurt. <laughs> but, but, but in the point taken, but it's true that Netflix has this ridiculous, like uh, up to a third of internet traffic in the U.S. is Netflix. So clearly they're in a totally different category. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, how much low kitty can we stream from here? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what else? We have anything else here? Let me see. Uh, was that even English just now? Um, blah, 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 blah. I think that That's uh, it. internet exchange points aren't. Oh, so you have a Wikipedia. Uh, yeah, I just was just going to say before people go, oh, no, Netflix and Comcast are using the secret backdoor. You know, they're using an internet exchange point. It's a company, you know, they're, these are not new. Lots of companies use them for lots of reasons. So, Equinix, yeah. Yeah, so it's not, um, you know, it's not some kind of wink nod. Our traffic's going to go faster, and Joel Flex isn't. It's know. just, it's physical infrastructure to connect two networks together, I yeah. guess, really, right? And it makes I mean, sense. how the whole internet functions. There's a bunch of these different, you know, at connection points where they wire different pipes together, and then they, some companies can have peering of their data networks. The problem is them? the problem is if the, if the if one company decides not to keep up 
with the other, you know, then you yeah. have to, you, what ends up is you end up dropping packets, and that's what's happening right now with Verizon. Right, packets are spilling all over the floor, and so no one's mopping them up. Nobody's mopping them up. We need a sump pump for packets. That's the, what we need. Yeah. Tubes are leaking. That's there. it. My new GitHub project: uh, packet sump pump. Cool. <laughs> I'm doing it. Packet sump pump. Why not? And then this is like the crazy internet startup thought process. Why not? No one's done it, you know? <laughs> we'll There's a reason for that. We'll be rich, I tell you. All right, that'll about do it for the developer news for this week. And so sorry for the first 20 minutes not being 20 minutes. But hey, you know, we had a time warp and we recorded it again. <laughs> so let's see. It is the 24th of February. And uh, for the Dev News, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Eric Snyder. I'm Joe Confino. And be more co- coherent than I am this week. Bye-bye. <laughs>